Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Stand back, Aaron Burr, for it is I, Alexander Hamilton, and the force is strong in me. And if you strike me down, my vision of a centralized national bank will grow stronger than you can possibly imagine. Here, BB-8. Take this report on full federal payment at face value to holders of government securities and bring it to a man named Mark Twain in the year 1881. Tell him to show it to no one except Cleopatra when she emerges from the time portal. Good droid, now go. What is this? Well, I'm just acting out scenes from the historical novel that I'm writing. How is it historical? This sounds like inaccurate claptrap. Because, Greg, sometimes history is more than just facts. History, it has a soul, and and I've tapped into that soul. Uh, you might have a point. Also, nobody's going to read a novel about Alexander Hamilton with no droids. Just listen to this show on historical fiction. And now, well, why don't you introduce him, BB-8? Really? You're going to go there? Oof. Colin McEnroe. I'm talking to Jay Perini, who's a poet, a novelist, a critic, a biographer. What am I leaving out? Well, he's a scholar, teaches English and creative writing at Middlebury College. His many books include The Last Station, a novel of Tolstoy's final year that was made into a motion picture, and most recently, The Empire of Self, A Life of Gore Vidal. So we've got a lot of different terrain on which we can approach this subject. So let me sort of just begin with maybe an overview. I mean, would it be fair in your experience to say that heading into the end of the last century, like maybe prior to, say, 1980 or 1990, that historical fiction was considered more genre than it is now. And it was implicitly, I mean, with with some notable exceptions, there was implicitly a slightly down market feeling about the whole thing, that it's literary fiction today, maybe it wasn't always assumed to be thus. Yeah, if you look at novels of, say, the 50s and 60s or before, historical fiction is for little old ladies, Often the authors have three names. They're called something like uh, <laughs> Susan McGorge Finley, right. and they and they it's a novel of uh, you know of nineteenth century Britain. It's almost a very it's much much a subgenre of literature that doesn't have any respect in the world. And so it wasn't until the eighties that people began by people I mean novelists began to take the idea of historical fiction seriously and began to. You really question what is a good novel that's set back in time. I, ha- I have all those Susan McGorge Finley novels, by the way, with their purple bindings and stuff like that. <laughs> You've got a shelf full of them. I've got I the know. entire set, actually. So, yes. Uh, and any no- novels that come in a set, you have to be a little bit suspicious of. Although Gore Vidal's historical no- novels do come as a heptology. I hope I said that right. So at least they do sort of form, uh, you know, an eight novel set. I assume that is one of the turning points, right? That Vidal yeah. says, wait a minute, there's like a, there's a whole really interesting way to tell tell history that doesn't give up any literary ground, but also makes some points I want to make. Yeah, it kind of started with his novel called Julian, which is about the fourth century apostate Roman emperor. And suddenly here was a genuine novel. It was a number one bestseller and was also really good fiction. And Gore began to use fiction as a way of interrogating the past. 
And I assume also, I mean, okay, so that's dangerous territory to turn Gore Vidal loose onto because one of the things, as he started consulting, not primary sources probably, but secondary sources because, I mean, I can't place Julian in a clear enough timeline to know what would have been had. But usually when you're looking at that period, you're dealing with Roman historians who didn't have eyes on the subject, that history from that period is assembled in pretty murky ways as opposed to these immutable denotative truths. You know, I guess if you're writing about Franklin Delano Roosevelt, you've got all kinds of uh, hard concrete data to deal with. You've got letters and diaries. You can talk to people who are actually living at the time. There's films. So there's massive epistemological data. We know where this stuff comes from. If you're writing about, say, Abraham Lincoln, it gets murkier. But if you're going back to a Roman emperor, who knows what you've got? You've got a mess of data, and it's not as easy to write about historical figures from that period. And people often say modern historical writing goes back to Herodotus and some of these Greek historians. But the truth is that's full of myth and made-up stuff and all kinds of uh, garbage that you would never consider scientific data these days. And fantastic stuff as well. So, But again, I would even question that there is such a thing as scientific history. I think that it's that any time you're getting in the realm of history, you're getting in the, in the realm of fiction. This is sort of a, you know an argument that gets pushed back and forth. One of the arguments that's been made, and I've seen you write about this too, is that in some ways fiction has to seem true. It has to adhere to some kind of standards that we recognize as truth, whereas history and biography are bound by no such precepts. You just write down the best thing you can find, thing that, and the truest thing you can find, but it doesn't have to sound true uh, because life often doesn't sound true. I love the quote from Oscar Wilde. He said, the English are always degrading our truths into facts. (laughs) And I think, you know, if we're going to get at the truth of something, we have to think about history as an arrangement of facts. And whenever you're arranging facts, you're leaving some things out, you're putting other things in. You're shaping the story. Remember, story is at the core of any historical work, whether it's fact or fiction. On the other hand, we do often find ourselves in these very seesawing environments. To me, the most vertiginous one of these is, you know, I mean, to go from the image of Sir Thomas More that we see in A Man for All Seasons to Hilary Mantel's vision of him. I mean, really sort of going from this estimable and admirable figure to this guy who's, you know, really kind of a dangerous maniac. Even if you're a little bit agnostic about all this stuff, it's still like, wow, one of them has to be not true, or or do you not grant that premise? If you look at any person, you look at your Uncle Ted, or I'm just making up your Uncle Ted. Mm. Some people might see your Uncle Ted as a really dark figure who's done a lot of evil things in his life. Other people will see your Uncle Ted as a lovable man who did wonderful things in his life. I think it all depends on your point of view, especially when you're dealing with a major historical figure like Cromwell. You're trying to really get into, or any of those figures that, we're t- that Hillary Mantel deals with, you're getting into an area where, whoa, uh, the story is going to be primary in the writer's mind, and uh, you're exploring the possibilities within that personality. As a writer, what do you feel your obligations are You know, in, in creating a historical milieu for your fiction, telling the stories of actual known people? What are the rules for you? Well, look, for, and again, it's going to vary from person to person. Jane Smiley will have one way of doing it, Gore Vidal one way, and I will have another way of doing it. I believe that one should always 
work with the agreed-upon facts. So when I write novels about, say, Tolstoy or Walter Benjamin being chased by the Nazis over the Pyrenees in 1940, or Herman Melville ghosts going sailing and chasing for whales in the 1840s or whatever, I try to stick with the agreed-upon facts. So in my novel, The Last Station, about Tolstoy's last year, if I say that he went, his wife in 1910, in, on August 23rd, jumped into the pond behind their house, which she did, and tried to commit suicide, it'll be a true fact, shall we say. But it's a question of what you do with that fact. I mean, once I have her jump into the pond, I jump into her head, and I try to imagine what it was like for her to be falling through the water, thinking, oh, my God, my husband has left me. What's become of my life? What will become of my children? Uh, What has my life meant? So one of the things fiction writers do is is to go places where the, the conventional historian doesn't dare tread. If you're writing a biography of Sofia Tolstoy, you wouldn't dare try to imagine what she was thinking as she slipped through the water and tried to kill herself. You'd be, you couldn't do that because there are very fierce genre demands. So the novelist is just a little bit freer to explore things in an imaginative way, to shine a flashlight into the dark corners of history. Novelists are able to work with what are called lacunae, the places where we don't have information, where there are silences. I'm writing a novel at the moment about the Apostle Paul. And when he left, uh, was, was after he had to escape from Damascus, after he had that wonderful vision of Christ on the way to Damascus, he, was, he escaped in a basket and said he went into the desert for many years. Well, nothing is known about what happened to St. Paul during those years in the desert. So I have to think as an historian now and say, well, what were the possibilities? We, went, we know he went into Arabia. Okay, where? If he went into Arabia, who would he have met? Oh, I think he might have met a mystical group called the Essenes. I get to make things up, but within the context of a plausible life. Oh, this is so fascinating. I want you to come back when this novel is done and have this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> because, I mean, obviously, I know that you also wrote a biography of Jesus. So, so when you do this stuff... Uh, and obviously your biography of Jesus is very different from the novel you'll be writing about uh, about the Apostle Paul. But you, when mm. you do this stuff, boy, you, you're, there's a whole other set of tripwires here. I mean, there's the argument that – and Jane Smiley is going to be on elsewhere in this show. But yes. uh, the kind mm-hmm. of argument that she and Neil Ferguson might get into, which has to do with historical purism. But you're walking around a whole other set of tripwires, which is what people need to believe or, or what people – I mean, a lot of people look at – a lot of religious people will look at the lacunae and say, you're not – not allowed to fill in the lacunae. <laughs> I know, but you know what any Christians say is is dealing with the fact that we know virtually nothing about Jesus from the time of his birth until he appears on the stage suddenly, the beginning of Mark, and there he is. Mm-hmm. So uh, age 30, and he's off on his ministry after he's baptized by John the Baptist. Frankly, we know very little about Jesus. In fact, in the mid-1930s, the great uh, theologian Rudolf Bultmann said, you know what? We know so little about Jesus that it's never even worth talking about his life. Right, and the go- for, four gospel writers have very different agendas. Mark's writing for a Roman audience. I mean, uh, the, none of them, once again, have, yeah. have eyes on experience. We're, we're back yeah. where we started. Yeah. yeah, the Christmas story only appears in Luke and Matthew, mm-hmm. and those two stories can't be reconciled. They're totally different. Matthew, Mark seems never to have heard of Christmas or Joseph or the manger or Bethlehem, and certainly the Gospel of John makes no mention of any of that. 
So there's two ways to look at the kind of work that you're doing. There's probably more than two, but there's uh, two obvious mm-hmm. ways. One of them is you're kind of a very effective and beneficent gateway drug into history, right? Maybe somebody who wouldn't pick up a Neil Ferguson uh, text, you know, will pick up uh, a piece of historical fiction if it's well well written, well imagined, uh, sure. and, and true. Uh, that person maybe then becomes interested in that historical period. So that's great. It's all to the good. And then there's uh, the dystopia that that Ferguson imagines which is that people are only willing to consume what he regards at a certain point as fairy stories, right? He, he's going to say, you know, well, as soon as you've got Tolstoy's wife in the pond and you're thinking about what she's thinking about, you're off the reservation and you're no use to me as a historian. Yeah, and, and I have no use for many historians because their work <laughs> is so dull and boring. Mm-hmm. I mean, they first of all often write very, very badly. And then what is the status of of the material they're working with a supposed fact? Many real historians are working from, say, letters, diaries, and interviews. And very frequently, that's very suspect material. I find the interview as one of the great forms of fiction. Memoir is the greatest form of fiction. So um, you can't really count fact as fact. I mean, what is the truth basis of most supposed facts in historical works? I would doubt that Ferguson could stand behind many of the facts. I I think I could go through page by page of his work and say, huh, you call this a fact? <laughs> so and, and I think the other thing is, and just maybe to build on that statement, is that the very best historians sooner or later have agendas or they begin to embrace a certain set of facts. David McCullough, writing about the Wright brothers, has, well, among other things, he was very unwilling to consider this other possible narrative that Gustav Whitehead uh, was also developing human-powered flight. And he gets really cranky about it, too. You can see at a certain point he's bonded with the Wright, Wright brothers and as great a historian as he is. He's really not interested in hearing about any other stuff. Right. What's the temptation that lures you or Vidal into historical fiction? I mean, if you're just writing fiction, you get to make up everything. If you're writing sort of Herman Wauk type uh, uh, historical fiction, you make up a bunch of characters and set them up against the scrim of some historical period. But the work that you that you're doing that Vidal did, okay, so if you're writing Lincoln, if you're writing Tolstoy, there are some limitations that will be put on you or that you'll put on yourself. The allure of doing it is that you really like to believe that you have a good historical imagination and you can edge your way into the material and and somehow discover angles on it which will be true and which will resonate and which will bring alive a period of history, a person, in a fresh way. I mean, Vidal took all of American history as his bailiwick. He said, I'm going to rewrite the American narrative. I'm going to show that really a lot of the things we thought were true about American democracy are not true. Gore really was obsessed with the idea that after a certain period, say 1850, with the war with Mexican, with the Mexican War, suddenly we became obsessed with empire acquisition. We became a very warlike nation. And so Gore is showing aspects of the American character that were not present in many conventional historians. 
I would imagine also, and it's, it's something that neither you or I are really qualified to talk about, but obviously there are groups of people whose stories aren't well told in histories because their records aren't as well preserved. I'm really thinking in particular of African-American, pre-Civil War African-Americans, where, you know, when you have writers like Edward P. Jones who come along and, and begin to write historical fiction about that, in a way, because, in fact, some of the records aren't maybe as complete as the power-holding white counterparts would be, it's a real opportunity to try to somehow or other use your mind to go into that period and understand it better than it's understood in, say, Gone with the Wind. You know, I like to think that writers of novels and poetry are people who can use their imagination in, in very useful ways. Rudyard Kipling wrote brilliantly, for example, about the English army in India. And uh, someone once asked Kipling, how did you know the way they talked inside the barracks in India? Did you? And he said, well, I was once passing by a barrack, <laughs> and I stopped for five minutes and listened at the window, and that's all it took. Well, he had such a powerful imagination that he was able to really people that world and get their attitudes and think about all the different varieties of human experience possible within that context. Let me go back to St. Paul for just a second. And so uh, when you approach a project like that one, do you feel an obligation to vacuum up every single particle of historical writing ever done about St. Paul? Only two years ago, I published A Life of Jesus. I had begun that book by rereading the New Testament very, very carefully. Uh, and I have been my entire life interested in theology, especially Christian theology. So this is not news to me. What's always news, though, is exploring all the varieties of information available. With St. Paul, I've got a, now at home a vast shelf of books by theologians, historians, biographers. There are so many takes on St. Paul. There's been vast amounts of research in the last 20 years. And so I feel, as a novelist, some obligation to have a pretty clear grasp of the parameters of discussion surrounding St. Paul. I mean, he's a, he's a crucial figure. I mean, St. Paul kind of invented Christianity. I mean, without St. Paul, there would be no church worldwide, I suspect. I mean, he spread the gospel around the world. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. So there's, I have a huge obligation here to write a book about St. Paul that in my deepest heart of hearts seems true. Um, it sounds terrific. I can't wait for it. Jay Perini, it's been so great to talk to you from uh, Middlebury College in Vermont. Uh, Jay Perini, a poet and novelist who teaches English and creative writing at Middlebury College. Uh, his books, as I say, will include The Last Station, a novel of Tolstoy's final year, and so many others. And we can't wait for the St. Paul novel. It sounds really terrific. Thank you so much for joining today. <laughs> Thank you, Colin. Glad to be on your show. We've been talking to Jay Perini. When we come back, Pulitzer Prize-winning author Jane Smiley on her kerfuffle with Neil Ferguson, Harvard historian and the author of a biography of Henry Kissinger, over whether historical fiction is all made up. I'm assuming I don't have to tell you who Jane Smiley is at this point. She won the Pulitzer Prize for A Thousand Acres. She's written so many more novels and some maybe less well-known nonfiction. And most recently, she's written her first trilogy, Last Hundred Years, A Family Saga. And more than that, I mean, we want to talk to her as a writer of historical fiction, but she's also kind of gotten into a conversation, and sometimes a somewhat heated conversation, about the nature of historical fiction and what its relationship is to history. So uh, we're going to talk a lot about that today. Uh, she's joining us from KAZU in Seaside, California. Um, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Maybe you can tell me why 
as a writer, you're attracted to historical fiction. I mean, obviously, you, you could and have written lots of fiction that takes place in the present where you don't have to spend insane amounts of time researching stuff and trying to figure out when the ferries crossed from, you know, San Francisco to yeah. Vallejo. Or, I mean, there's like a lot of fly specking that you have to do with historical fiction. So why bother? I've written uh, several historical novels, and the impetus for each one was slightly different. The first one was The Greenlanders, and the impetus for that one was I knew that there had been— I was familiar with the Icelandic sagas, and I knew that there had been a colony on Greenland, and I was interested in that and why it might have disappeared. And there was a fair amount of archaeological evidence, It was, and it was just an interesting topic. Another one was The All True Travels and Adventures of Liddy Newton, which is about the Kansas conflicts in the 1850s. And I came up with that because of the Oklahoma bombing. And I said to a friend of mine who was a historian, I said, I need to write about these internecine conflicts in America. And the first word out of his mouth was Kansas. So I grew up in St. Louis, and I was familiar with Kansas as an idea and the Civil War and how complex it was in Kansas and Missouri. And so I decided I needed to do that. So it hasn't been a general desire to write historical fiction. It's more been a specific desire to look into particular events or incidences or places. You know, I'm sitting uh, just a few blocks right now from uh, the area where both Mark Twain and Harriet Beecher Stowe lived on so-called Nook Uh Nook Farm in Hartford. So I'd be remiss uh, if I didn't bring up uh, your uh, essay in Harper's in 1996, in which, in some ways, you are raising some of these questions about historical fiction, although you're raising it about authors who are living in in a chronologically closer time to the fiction that they were creating, which I know you've also done, and and you've already alluded to that. But it seemed... In that essay, as though you felt as though Stowe did a better job of what you just described, which is to making making the reader feel as though the reader is living in the time with all of its details, as opposed to Huck Finn, which seemed to you what a little bit more mythically constructed. For Stowe, this wasn't historical fiction. This right. was fiction that was taking place while she was alive and while she was contemplating the issue of slavery. The point of my article in Harper's was not to compare the two, but to say that Uncle Tom's Cabin was a better book than its reputation was. And then to add to that, that I didn't, there were things about Huckleberry Finn that I didn't like. And so I didn't view it as the greatest American novel, which it se- people seemed to think at the time that it was. I don't know if people think about it that way now. But Huckleberry Finn was historical fiction because Twain wrote it after those days were gone. I think he wrote it from memory. I don't think he went back and did any research or anything like that. It's also, I think, it's not photorealism either. You know, it's not the fictive equivalent of photorealism. It is, I think, explicitly a yarn. I would say so. You know, he had trouble with it. One One of the things I found very interesting about his writing of Huck Finn was that once Huck and Jim got south of the Ohio River, he put it away. I think he was scratching his head and saying, I, you know, I don't know what to do now. But like most writers, he needed the money. So three years later, he took it out and he said, okay, I think I can fix this. 
by turning it into something more playful than it started out being. Mm -hmm. And for some people, it works, and for other people, it doesn't. I, I happen to be one of the people who it doesn't work for. But he chose a controversial topic, and um, he dealt with it as best he could, and that's what writers do. You've written historical fiction where you've delved deeper into the past, and then you've written historical fiction in which sort of the time kind of links in a, in a series of, uh, of like charm bracelet charms closer and closer uh, to the present. So I'm assuming the closer you get to the present, there's a diciness that intrudes. I mean, did you, did you find that? And if so, how would you describe the problematic nature of writing historical fiction that's you know, within the scope of your own lifetime? Well, I don't want to leave out Private Life, which was right. a historical book that I wrote that starts in 1878 and ends in the middle of the Second World War. The closer you get to our world, the more data there is, the more books have been written, the more information there is. And so your problem is not finding out what happened, but sorting out what happened. When I was writing The Greenlanders, the stack of books about medieval Greenland was probably two feet high, you know? So it was comprehensible. When I was writing uh, The Last Hundred Years Trilogy, I really had to sort through the books and the information online and make up my mind what was the most likely stuff to stick in because I could have just gone on and on. It could have been, instead of being essentially a grand total of 1,200 pages. It could have been 12,000 pages. I want to just sort of pause on that because I think that's, that's a, um, a thing worth exploring for a second because certainly with a novelist, somebody who's creating fiction, it's almost axiomatic that you're making choices, you're inventing uh, some of the content. When you're writing nonfiction— well, thing, Excuse yeah. me, I'm going to say something. Go. The sure. thing you're inventing is the inner lives of your characters. Mm -hmm. And so— if you have characters who actually existed, then you're on slightly more risky ground mm -hmm. because um, you're in, other people are going to have theories about the inner lives of those characters. A while back, you were on Start the Week on BBC. Uh, in fact, uh, you wound up on this show with uh, Neil Ferguson, uh, the historian. And we're going to play just a, a little clip. But you and Neil Ferguson uh, turned out to have a difference of opinion. Let's hear a little bit of that. Whether you're reading Tolstoy or, or, or Jane Smiley, people who write historical fiction are telling you what it must have felt like. But that's not what it felt like, because essentially they're projecting back, in this case, early 21st century ideas how, how on, on imaginary characters. Well, how do you characters? think that I discovered how it must have felt like? Well, I did is, research and I read what people right, said it felt yeah, like. This is so did you. But your characters you are did imaginary, research. Jane, um, no. And this is a really important point. Now, well, and not to disparage what you do, but we need to recognize that it's oh, different okay. <laughs> because these aren't real people and you're just telling us what these imaginary people must have felt. As a historian, you have to be really careful because you can't really easily in your mind distinguish between these imagined facts and, and real ones. Historians are in the business of reconstituting past experience. But you don't think from, that's projection? Can I finish? You don't think really that's projection? This is terribly important. We're trying to reconstruct past experience, but from primary sources, from things that people wrote down, we're not allowed to just make it up. And that's a really important distinction. And it went on like this, but uh, to your way of thinking, what was that conversation about? What were you and Neil Ferguson not agreeing about? We were not agreeing about whether he was the most important person in the room. <laughs> <laughs> okay, point taken, point taken. But I guess maybe another way to the ask main, this. The main issue of our disagreement was 
that he was not willing to admit that his narrative about the life of Henry Kissinger depended upon a theory and that that theory could be right or wrong. He was only willing to say that he used primary sources and I didn't. But of course, I did use primary sources. I just fictionalized what I learned from them. But it was evident to me that um, he wasn't going to be, he, he was going to have the last say. So he did. One of the questions that lingers for me is that question that for many people, and I might be one of those people, historical fiction can have a bigger impact than somebody writing straight history. That, you know, that, that as you read things, your vision of, that, of the world that you're reading about is shaped and, and maybe imprinted really profoundly you know, in, in a way that maybe no history book or, or only certain history books could equal. Does it matter if our ultimate prevailing notion of who Thomas More is or was is shaped more by Hilary Mantel than by some historian. I love reading history. And some of my favorite books that I've read in the last couple of years have been history. But they've sort of been large history, like Ian Morris's book, Why the West Rules for Now, or Jeffrey Parker's book, Global Crisis. And what they do is they take um, a long period of time and they look at the larger implications and the larger energy in that period of time. And then they come up with ideas about what that means. Uh, specific history, I think people who are interested go back and forth. If I were reading Hillary Mantel's book about Thomas More, I would go read some other book about Thomas More. Why, who is stopping me? I think quite often historical fiction leads you to go reading books of history just to find out more. And there's no reason to denigrate one or the other. We become interested in historical characters because we read about them as people. And then once we read about them as people, they exist in our minds and we go and read about them, about what information is left about them. One of the books I read recently reviewed for the New York Times is a book called the Year of Lear by James Shapiro. Mm -hmm. And it's about basically English history between the middle of 1605 and the end of 1606. And what he he does is he talks about the various things that were happening in Shakespeare's world during this 18-month period, and they were all very dramatic. And what you do as you read this is you feel that you understand something about how Shakespeare lived, how he came up with those plays that he wrote that year, what this world must have felt like to him. Well, it's all extrapolation, even though it's not, it's nonfiction, because we don't know anything about Shakespeare from that year, except the very fewest things. But to read the book is to feel that, yes, this is true, I can learn something here. To me, I think it's all a continuum. At the one end, we have books that are obviously kind of counterfactual. And at the other end, we have books that are as close to factual as possible. And then there's a continuum along which the books exist. And it's the reader's job to make up his or her mind about which ones to read, which ones to like, which ones to enjoy, and which ones to believe.
And for an author simply to assert, oh, well, you can only think this way or you can only think that way, that's ridiculous. Because the author's job is just to put it out there. And it's the reader's job to make judgments and have preferences. I want to come back to that. Uh, but first, I want to remind people you're listening to Jane Smiley, uh, known for books like A Thousand Acres, Speaking of Lear, and um, most recently, this trilogy, Last Hundred Years, A Family Saga, or perhaps most pertinently, uh, that as well. We're talking about historical fiction. So so the author's job is just to put it out there. I guess what I would ask you here is, is it possible in that context then for the author to commit a wrong? For example, in the movie JFK, Oliver Stone, at the beginning, I think there's some sentence this little, you know, box that comes up that says the truth, the true story has never been told. You're about to see the true story. And then what's there is clearly not the true story in a lot of ways. More recently and, and more and clo- even closer to the bone for us, uh, Catherine Bigelow's movie Zero Dark Thirty, a lot of people are really troubled by the way in mm-hmm. which things are presented in that movie that seem, at least to a lot of us, counterfactual and counterfactual in a way that shores up, say, a Department of D- Defense slash CIA, CIA account of the efficacy of torture. So I guess that's what I'd mean by a wrong. You know, I mean, if you if you yeah. say something that's not true at that level, is that a wrong? To do that is a very controversial thing. And that brings us back to Neil Ferguson. He is writing a biography of Henry Kissinger, who's already written his own autobiography. Mm. What is he doing with his biography of Henry Kissinger? He is trying to bring him back as a positive figure. When in the world around, in the world in general, he's viewed as a negative figure. And so, is the thing he's doing wrong? Probably not, because he has a theory about Henry Kissinger's value and importance, a theory that certainly Kissinger shares. Do they get to, to express their own theory? Of course they do. But it's just a theory about these historical incidents that Henry Kissinger was a part of. I don't think it's got the same pizzazz as the movies that you talk about because it's not a movie. Mm -hmm. Every book is read by a single person. Every person has his or her own opinion. It's not a sort of mass viewing the way a movie is. Mm -hmm. So I think that they they approach the audience in a different way. And in some ways, the problem with a movie that isn't necessarily factual is that it imposes itself. It's so large that it imposes itself upon you. A book is a thing that inserts itself into you like a little virus. <laughs> and you, ha- you and it are equally powerful. That's putting a certain burden anyway on the reader saying, OK, you figure it out. There's always a burden on the reader because a book is nothing And then the reader opens it up and the book comes alive in the reader's imagination. It can't exist. It doesn't exist simply as a set of words. It only exists as the reader is reading them. Um, Jane Smiley, this has been a fascinating conversation, and I hope for you a more amiable one. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. We've been talking to Jane Smiley. When we come back, Lin-Manuel Miranda's Broadway hit Hamilton is not the Hamilton we learned about in freshman history class, but it's getting rave reviews from critics, fans, and even some historians.
Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan, the little princess of a merchant family in the northern German city of Lübeck during the years 1835 to 1847, and by me, a gentlewoman of fierce reputation, beloved by some, feared by the rest, who, in an adventure where I am wounded, meets the Duke of Anjou, pretender to the throne of Henry III. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Our interns are Zachary LaSalle and Nate Gagnon and President Millard Fillmore. The part of Bill Curry was played by the Emperor Claudius. For show pages, articles, and photos of the here and now staff dressed as the six wives of Henry VIII, visit our website wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, the nose wraps up 2015. And now, back to Colin. In the final segment today, we're going to talk about Hamilton. And I'm going to begin by before I even let our guest talk. I have to say, I struggled with this a little bit, and I'll tell you why. First of all, I mean, I know we have to talk about Hamilton. It's just this incredible phenomenon. But I have sort of a grumpy and churlish take on this, which is that I'm kind of tired of hearing my fellow journalists who don't go to plays, who don't use theater to inform themselves about history and about public events. Because Hamilton is like the one play they've gone to in the last two years, then I just hear them cavelling and getting all excited about uh, Hamilton. And I feel as though, wow, you know, if you don't use Richard Nelson's Apple play, Apple Family Cycle plays at the public or you haven't seen Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson or you're not watching Ayad Akhtar's plays about Muslim Americans and, and Muslims in the Muslim world, uh, if those things aren't informing your viewpoint and then suddenly, you know, Hamilton is this highly fetishized thing for you, it just seems as though you're kind of missing the point. Anyway, uh, that's just me being grumpy. I go to New York. I go to the theater a lot. Hamilton isn't the only play that could be useful to somebody. However, it is the only play that has the kind of profile that uh, Hamilton has right now joining us. And then when I read Joanne Freeman's piece, I thought, oh, well, we absolutely have to talk about that. Joanne Freeman is a professor of, Ham- of history and American studies at Yale. She's the author of Affairs of Honor, National Politics in the New Republic. Uh, she's joining us now from the studios uh, of Yale. Welcome to our show. Well, thanks for having me. In, in a piece for Slate, uh, you explored this whole question, uh, this question of what Hamilton does and does not do. And it seems fair to say, I, I think, based on, on my reading of your piece, that you know it's kind of similar to what was said about Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson. It captures the essence of Hamilton, or at least one of the ways that one could understand Hamilton. But, but say more about how, how you perceive this. That's interesting. I mean, I saw Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson, too. I think the difference between that or one of the differences between that and this is that Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson was very much tongue in cheek. Mm -hmm. You know, it was it was it was winking at the audience the entire time. So I didn't expect that play to really give me that much from the time period. I suppose there were aspects of Jacksonian America maybe mm-hmm. floating through there. I was bemused that, you know, I'm watching a play with John Quincy Adams on the stage. and That that doesn't happen all that often. But I think a difference between that play and Hamilton is that Hamilton is very sincere about what it's presenting. I think I know that, that Lynn Miranda really took the, the history seriously. I mean, there there's a lot of stuff in that show. I mean, they... they sing part of Washington's farewell address. You know, they they sing about the assumption of state debts by Alexander Hamilton. I mean, there, there are things in that show that as a historian, I was very surprised that they were there in full seriousness, not not trying to make a joke. Now, that said, there is a lot of humor in the show. And I think one of the things that works for the show that maybe is why there are a good number of historians who are not crotchety about it is it doesn't take place in the past or the present. Mm -hmm. I think if it were 
staged as though it was in the 18th century, there'd be a lot of crotchety historians just because it would be presenting itself as, you know, historical fact. But it isn't. You know, it's presenting itself as an interpretation of that, blending the past and the present. And in that zone, I think it does communicate some of the spirit of the past. And, and I think maybe that's also partly because it isn't, it isn't being tongue-in-cheek about it. It's being sincere and, and I think kind of respectful about the history. I think also, I mean, you kind of have to pay out a little bit, little bit of rope to a musical. I mean, when people burst into song, we know we're in a fictional land because people simply do not burst into song or begin spontaneously <laughs> rapping uh, about <laughs> things. So, so right away, no one is imagining that this is anything uh, uh, approaching a, a documentary relationship to history. On the other hand, it could also be argued, if you're worried about historical accuracy, that music is infectious, that, ring, that earworms become brainworms that people can be persuaded to sing all kinds of things uh, because because music is so potent so that if, in fact, people are going to sing or rap things that aren't historically accurate, those things may stay in their brain a long time. Well, that's true. And, you know, I've in the last couple months, I've done a little bit of lecturing in high schools and I'll be talking about the 1790s. And as I mention something, I can see the kids in the audience mouthing the appropriate words from <laughs> Hamilton. <laughs> So, yeah, I think uh, whatever those brainworms are, the earworms, they're already in there, I think, uh, for a lot of the students. Is there anything in Hamilton that strikes you as grossly inaccurately accurate, troublingly inaccurate? I mean, you've spoken and written about some of the things that they kind of amazingly get to in a musical that's so popular and so aimed at a, po- at a mass audience. Are there things that you really feel, well, maybe a disservice is done by not being more accurate about this? One could say that the Hamilton who is in that show, although I think as a person, there's a lot of the real Hamilton that's in there. You know, there's a lot of Hamilton's politics that are not in there, you know. So Mm. he comes across as, you know, one of the messages of the play, I think in the play and in the casting of the play, the sort of immigrant message of America being a land of immigrants and, and, you know, the sort of power of that, of of coming to the country and sort of making yourself something, coming from nothing. And that, that narrative underlies the play. But, you know, Hamilton wasn't a great Democrat. And although he did see himself to some degree as an immigrant, never quite belonging, he also wasn't always that excited by the impact that immigrants would have on America, for example. And he wasn't necessarily that trusting of the masses, you know. So the real Hamilton, I think, has very complex, complicated, and by a modern viewpoint, not always cheerily encouraging politics. But I don't think that the play is saying, here, we will now give you an in-depth analysis (laughs) of Alexander Hamilton's politics. I really do think it's largely presenting itself as, here's a person whose story we're telling. And he is a historical character. He's a founder. And the fact that we're telling that kind of story in this kind of way is interesting. But, you know, obviously, I'm not deeply troubled, I guess, by the lack of information about all of that, those other aspects of Hamilton's politics. I guess I'm also assuming that a lot of people who get interested in this play are going to want to read more. And they're going to find that stuff when they turn to actual history. I think necessarily also everybody has to, everybody writing either fiction or nonfiction ultimately chooses a take on the subject matter. So, I mean, earlier in the show, we talked to Jay Perini, who's a biographer of Gore Vidal. So Gore Vidal, uh, writing about Aaron Burr, has a take on Aaron Burr. He's writing fiction about Aaron Burr. He has a take about Aaron Burr, uh, Lynn Emanuel Miranda, uh, the creator of 
uh, of Hamilton has a take uh, on Aaron Burr. But if you're writing biography, too, um, straight biography, if well, Jane Smiley, who we talked to earlier in this show in writing a bi- biography of Charles Dickens, has to make all kinds of decisions. I mean, some biographers of Dickens really do emphasize that he's kind of a monster to his family and made them completely miserable. Well, you can choose to emphasize that or, or choose something else. So while we're on this subject, maybe it would be good to hear a little bit of music from uh, Hamilton. So here's, here is the aforementioned Aaron Burr, part of his soliloquy about Hamilton. Uh, this is sung by Leslie Odom, Jr. Death doesn't discriminate between the sinners and the saints. It takes and it takes and it takes and we can live in any way. We rise and we fall and we break and we make mistakes. And if there's a reason, I'm still alive when everyone who loves me has died. I'm willing to wait for it. Wait for it. I'm willing to wait for it. So if that makes you want to go get tickets to Hamilton, don't bother trying. Um, (laughs) uh, But it probably does make you want to go get uh, tickets to Hamilton. So Joanne Freeman is a professor of history at Yale and the author of Affairs of Honor, National Politics in the New Republic and the editor of Alexander Hamilton Writings. So Hamilton, notwithstanding your finest efforts, Joanne Freeman, prior to the launching of this musical, if you were to walk into a high school uh, classroom or maybe even a freshman history uh, class at Yale, Hamilton would be a pretty inert topic for a lot of people. I mean, if if this historical fiction has a single virtue, would it be that it just completely animates somebody whose you know main role in American thought and, and imagery prior to the beginning of this musical was its position on a piece of American currency? You're right. And I think Ron Chernow's book sort of started the trend. But before that point, yeah, I think people, if anyone had ever heard of Hamilton, they knew he was on some money and maybe they knew he died in a duel and that was about it. But I actually think, to me, one of the things that the play really accomplishes that matters is not necessarily that it restores life to a historical character like Hamilton, but it's that it restores life to that time period Mm -hmm. in a way that I think really grabs people. And oddly enough, and this is a sentence that I'm amazed is coming out of my mouth, but the rap and the hip hop music really does capture uh, something about the spirit of that revolutionary moment. The fact that it's an improvised moment, the fact that there's a lot of bravado involved in that moment. You know, it the play, because it's a musical and because it's specifically that kind of music with that kind of a cast, really, I think, brings life back into the founding period. And that's a period that I think for a lot of people is very dead and very boring and very cast in marble. And the play, by bringing back, you know, a contingency and, and bringing back the sort of risk of the moment, I think that's something. As someone who teaches and writes about early America, that is something. If the play can really communicate to people that this is a period that was alive and that was improvised and that was risky and that people were making choices and that things could have gone in different directions, I just don't think people think about the founding period in that way. 
there's that kind of dynamism. And then there's sort of the dynamism of his historical understanding that, I mean, in the course of my lifetime, I've um, had very, very different thoughts about Jefferson. Uh, I'm kind of down on him right now. In fact, last night uh, at an event I was at, somebody quoted the famous JFK Nobel Prize thing. This is the most extraordinary ta- collection of talent of human knowledge that has ever been gathered at the White House, with the possible exception of when Thomas Jefferson dined alone. And I was quietly thinking, well, he probably wasn't alone. He had slaves waiting on him hand and foot. Maybe we could mention that, too. And what, in many ways, a dreadful person he really was. But see, I don't know if I'm alive to years from now, I might be thinking about that in a whole new way. And the idea that Vidal could write Burr and then this production of Hamilton could exist is also an argument for the dynamism of history, that no matter what time period it's located in, it just doesn't sit there calmly. Right. No, I think that that's very true. I mean, and particularly when you're talking about, I think, any historical character, and particularly one that has anything potentially controversial about him or her, they rise and fall in popularity and their reputations shift and merge and morph over time. And and that's true for certainly for Hamilton and Jefferson. But, you know, across the board, um, I think that's true. I think the play glances at that, too. It talks a lot about creating narratives and changing narratives and who's in the narrative. So it glances at that fact as well, I think, that history is a, is a narrative that, that we make. You know, we create our historical narratives and they, they shift and they change over time. And it's kind of fun, too. I mean, I'm having fun. I mean, I really I was like Mr. Quote Jefferson about everything. 20 years ago. And I'm kind of ha- having fun hating him right now. And it's, it's like, and I'm assuming, I mean, you sound like a pretty cool person anyway, but I imagine you're cooler these days that people want to sit next to you at dinner parties when they find out you're a Hamilton expert. Oh, yeah. Suddenly, yeah. Suddenly more than ever. I mean, I had a little moment in which when the um, HBO miniseries about John Adams was on, I was invited over a lot to sit with people and watch it and then (laughs) sort of comment in the background. But yeah, this suddenly my dinner conversation has become a lot more in demand, I think. (laughs) Right. So we'll just turn that into a uh, public radio pledge thing. You know, for a pledge of $200, Joanne Freeman will come to your house and... uh, (laughs) talk to you about American history and watch whatever it is you want to watch on television. Well, listen, this has been great. It's really uh, the perfect way to end the show. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Jay Perini, author and professor at Middlebury College, Pulitzer Prize winning author Jane Smiley, and Yale's Joanne Freeman for joining us today. Special thanks to Betsy Kaplan for producing the whole amazing show. Tomorrow, The Nose, our culture panel reviews 2015. And on Friday, Happy New Year. We'll have special programming and come back Monday with a new scramble. You know, BB-8, I haven't seen the new musical Hamilton, but I don't think he deserves all the praise he gets for figure skating. Oh, there's a different Hamilton? 